Hello World, retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud. Hi, I'm your host, Christy Hornland. And I'm Brad Rayford. Welcome to the Risk Factors, Perspectives, and IoT podcast. Today, we're speaking with KPMG's Bria Sandoval about energizing cyber awareness, culture, and training to equip your staff with the skills they need to secure your most critical business functions. Let's catch this wave. Okay, so going back to an original question, um, is your love of a brontosaurus from, come, does it stem from uh, the land before time? No. Oh. Hard No. It is Jurassic Park all the way. And I'm talking OG Jurassic Park, like not the stuff that they've got out now. I mean, I get it. Chris Pratt is hot and everything, but like I'm talking your classic, you know, comes from an amber baby dinosaur raptor style. So, okay, that's where it hits for me. And was it like, is it the majesty of the brontosaurus? Is it the, the neck length? What is it about the brontosaurus that is, it is. so it's appealing? A very, it's a very majestic being, and they're just so large, but just gentle giants. So there's just it's just the woo-woo for them, for me. They just really bring it home. It's like my spirit animal. You know, I've always wondered, when it comes to, you know, thinking of the size and scale of dinosaurs, right? how many brontos- brontosauri could there have been in any one place? Right, because they're mm. they're massive. They're like the size of what three buses. So, like a pack of five would be a small neighborhood. Fair, fair, fair. Right. So, like, well, how many? If we think of like endangered species now, how many would it take to be called or be considered an endangered brontosaurus? Oh man, I don't know. I got to get back up on my stats there, mm. but I did hear that they roam in like herds and packs. So just think about it like a pack of wolves, but 300 million ton dinosaur buses stacked together, you know, just- It's gotta be terrifying. Imagine being any other, I I truly believe the Tyrannosaurus Rex probably went after the Brontosauri because they were so massive in a pack. It's like, that's a little bit of an insecurity and inferiority complex. Yeah, I'm feeling it now. Wait, way to just hit the heart right there. That's how we we do here on the show. Well, Bria, thanks you. Thank you for joining us on the show today, Bria. It's very exciting to have Thank you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so today, uh, we are talking a little bit about learning, uh, the context for learning skills in cyber, and how that trickles into culture change, uh, the requirements for building a cyber education program and making it sustainable, uh, not just for skill acquisition, but for long-term repeatability in, in the maintenance of new technologies. Uh, what I wanted to start out with is a brief, um, a brief tangent on surfing. Right? So it's come to my attention that there may have been in your own experience and in those uh, familiar with the show uh, that you really recently went through a skill acquisition phase of your own. Yeah. I don't say? know how much of the skills were acquired during that time, but let's call it that. Well, let's break it down. Okay. So tell us about your experience in learning a new skill. And what that was like for you as an adult. So truth be told, I'm in the middle of acquiring a new skill too. Um, crocheting. I what that is. It's, a, it's called crocheting. a ruble. Yeah. Okay. It's, there we go. Yes, perfect. Crocheting. It is not something I'm familiar with. So I'm interested in learning from you. How did you go about a, approaching learning a new skill? I think for me, I'm always excited, but like a little scared, anxious all at the same time. Um, You know, what I I think was really cool about where I went was it was uh, an environment that really made you feel safe and comfortable and really warm. So I think that's a part of it is making sure you have like a safe environment to learn and grow in. And you're doing it with people um, like Christy, the work wife here, who, you know, support you in those efforts. And so I think that's the first thing. And they, and it's all about building blocks, right? Starting slow. They first had us out in a pool where you're not getting murdered by waves and um, getting tumbled, where it's a, you know, safe environment. They can talk you through the basics um, and get you comfortable with being in those settings. And, at, I think what's also important is there's the monitoring and structure of um, the teachers that really 
kind of look at what you're doing and how you're progressing and can tailor how they're helping you get to that next level or get onto the surfboard or different positioning. And I think what was great about that is, you know, each of us are unique to your point and your crocheting in how we learn. So it's important that, you know, the one size fits all model doesn't always work. So looking at the differences between how Christy caught on a lot faster than I did and was doing fancy <laughs> tricks um, where I'm just trying not to drown and, and stay upright. So I think that's also important. And that's a concept I'll talk about a little bit more as well around how we talk about tailoring and making learning unique with our role-based strategy to ensure that we have the most opportunity for success. Cool. Great answer. Um, now, I don't want to, I'm big against spoilers. Right? Okay. It doesn't matter if something is in the future or the past. If I haven't seen it, please don't spoil it for me, is what I tell all, all the people around me, um, which seems to give my wife and my mother-in-law extreme pleasure in mm. spoiling things for me. Um, now, so maybe this is something we'll touch on later, but you mentioned that Christy took to surfing a lot faster and was able to prove and demonstrate the skills and, and, and do some tricks, which Christy, I'm shocked you haven't shared that with me yet. <laughs> I wonder, I've only seen pictures. I need to see video. Don't hold out, Christy. I don't know. I also spent a lot of time in the washing machine of the waves. So <laughs> I would say there were some highs, there were some lows. Maybe Bria's focused on the highs, inducing the positive culture here. But yeah. Right? Do you see the positive affirmation and motivation? That's just, she's going to get right back on that surfboard. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, my question here, and if it's something we talk about later, that's that's cool with me, is the translation of skills from like activities. So Christy is also a snowboarder. Mm-hmm. Right? So in my own in my own life, I also snowboard, I ski, I've tried surfing, tried my hand at it. Uh, I was a swimmer, so very comfortable in the water. Uh, I was able to get on a surfboard and and not do tricks. I won't say like I'm Christy Hornland great at surfing. Um, we need but, to start taking this down before somebody uses this against you. I have to imagine there's some element of bringing like skills or like experience into the learning process for new skill acquisition. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I mean, so while I'm not like Kelly Slater over here, I mean, I have my background is in ballet and gymnastics, which does require a lot of like balance and muscle focus and like body awareness. So I think in that specific, you know, environment, I was able to leverage those past experience and skill sets and try to apply them in that environment. And I think that's that's true with what we're going to talk about a little bit later here is how you use those past skills and experiences and muscle memory to apply them to other areas. Okay, fascinating. You know, the other thing that you said that that immediately was a new a new element for me was they started you off in a pool, mm-hmm. right? So you started in the water when I when yeah. I surfed, and this wasn't. It's not like this was a decade ago. This was maybe three years ago. Uh, we did what you'd see on all the television shows. We started on the beach, right? I was in Hawaii, okay. so it was like. On the beach, that was what we had access to. So you were on the sand, on your board. They taught you how to pop up. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I misspoke. We started in the store, right? So in, in the surf okay. shop, they they said like, this is how you pop up. And then we went to the sand. And then it was well, like, okay. go get in the waves. So from your experience, it seems like there's already a new paradigm of what that maybe secondary starter position was, mm-hmm. right? Outside of the pure conceptual education content of, don't try and stand up sideways, like the, the, the raw, the raw stuff, but the actual practice right. before getting into the, the rough and rocky water was in a pool. Yeah. And then we did start on land first, right. With the whole pop-ups and like positioning, but I think mm-hmm. the pool after that, before the ocean was essential, right. Because you're in the water, you're in like a bucket of water essentially. Right. And so you're not getting slammed by waves. And so it's a gradual increase to a higher, what I would say from like your lower foundations to higher proficiency levels, which is actually how I'll kind of talk through in some of the learning, how we build upon those skills. And it goes back to those building blocks as well. So you can't just go from zero to a hundred real quick. Right. So if I think of like the the mechanisms, the mechanisms of training and, and educating people in professional context, there's that pool period would be a drill. That would be a safe environment to test out skills, to try things, to be okay to fail, 
Yep. Whereas in a professional environment, sometimes it's you go through the theoretical learning and then the next time you practice it is when you actually have to execute the skill real life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and I think that that's, you know, that's a good point too, right? Where we're trying with some of our methodologies for more higher skill-based proficiency levels, role-based targeted training, looking at, we leverage what's called the Bloom's taxonomy, which goes through, I think it's like one to even six or seven, eight levels, but we'll start off with your basic foundation of just knowledge and awareness, and then move up through your 201, 301 level, which is more on the application of those skills. So like you were saying in a professional environment, more hands-on. And so where we can, we want to try to do that in a safer space and a simulated environment. We're not going to break a bunch of shit, but at the same time, give that person that real life experience. Cause I don't know about you, but I learn hands-on by doing versus watching others. And I think that is a super helpful tactic that we like to apply. Okay, great. So maybe a, a more foundational question. Where did your interest in learning concepts, learning paradigms and education, where did this come from? Oh, well, um, back 10 years ago, um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, I, I started off in facilitating awareness um, programs probably about 10, 12 years ago, doing just the stand-up new hire orientation. And then when I came to KPMG, I guess it's been four years ago or so, I started working with a client that really was more, I said, I'll say head of the curve. And what's passionate about it for me that I really latched onto there was we were, it's the people side. Like we were able to go to their client sites all over the world and see people in different cultures and environments everywhere from China to Singapore to India to um, Switzerland and really have face to face contact with them and be able to teach them something that then they could apply in not only their professional, but day-to-day life. So for me, I find it to be very rewarding to be able to share something that I have learned or I have experience in and for that to make an impact on someone else's life. I think one of the things that you're saying there, Bria, that ties back to a lot of the data around where the actual risk stays is really that human element. And I think it it really extends. So I know in 2022, Verizon built out the data breach investigations report, basically said 82% of the breaches were really involved with a human element. So putting the person square in the center of all of the potential breaches that could occur for an organization. And so I'm, I'm curious from your side, you know, as you're establishing cyber awareness, how critical is it to relate both the the people part that you're saying and also what you're kind of mentioning with surfing, which was a low stress environment to initially mm-hmm. learn in? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a good question, Chrissy. And that's where you'll start to hear like the buzzwords now around cybersecurity culture change, right? Where historically it's been training and awareness, right? which isn't the full picture. And so I think, you know, with what Verizon was calling out there is like, right, we can throw as many technical solutions and lockdown environments and patch vulnerabilities. But at the end of the day, we built all this stuff, the human element. And and that's really what we're talking about is how do we manage that human risk? And so when we talk about the how, we kind of tying that back into what Christy you were hitting on there around, which I call is the culture. So you have to have an environment which fosters a safe culture and is security first mindsets for employees and for people to want to actually follow those desired secure behaviors because we can train and we can make people aware as much as possible. But at the end of the day, It's up to you and I and Brad and people to make the active decision to apply those concepts and those skills to their every day. So it's it's really we're shifting from did we do a training exercise to are we seeing a change in behavior and how do we create a safe environment like a surfing pool uh, kitty pool to give our employees or our, our colleagues an opportunity to learn 
and foster a culture that it's okay. And we support this. Yeah. I I would like to even say one thing to that, that I know we've talked about before, but really the premise of shifting the attitude towards, especially like your role in it to, I have power over something that I do understand is a threat to, to the organization and maybe to that, that community that I really care about um, across organizations. So I think that's a really interesting point just to highlight there. On that, Chris, you've probably heard like in the past where it's like the human is the weakest link. Well, that kind of is giving more negative vibes off where if I'm thinking, well, oh, I'm the weakest link. Instead, now I'm starting to see companies say more of like the human is the most important element and we depend on you. Like you can, you can help us. You're a part of the solution. So yeah, I'm I'm starting to see that. And I think that that kind of ties into what you were just hitting on there. Yeah. So I guess my my next question to you would really be around the lines of, you know, how are you seeing the programs be set up now? And even even the shape that you've seen change from, say, your your experience five years ago to now, it sounds a little bit of the human element of of giving more power to the individual. But are there other kind of major pieces that you see in the foundations? I think when we talk five years ago, we're talking about that typical just awareness and training programs, right? Typically in an organization, you would see someone who had some other security governance type role in an organization or risk role, and maybe they were, you know, putting together the new hire training that people get once a year. And that would, you know, satisfy the audit or regulatory requirements for an organization to say, yep, we train our people. Um, now I think it's shifted to organizations like, you know, looking at some of the data from Verizon that they put out where executives are now seeing like that is not enough. And there's been more of a shift in programs today. And I see even more in the future where they're actually creating dedicated functions in organizations that have the appropriate resources to support it. And then from the program standpoint, I see also a shift towards more technology enablement as well, especially as our workforce in general changes over time. I see a lot more of innovative technology solutions being leveraged to deliver more immersive, gamified, interactive learning experiences. Um, instead of what I would call your death by PowerPoint, <laughs> click through, nobody's watching, you know, multitasking, doing 20 other things at the same time tools. So more on like the metaverse, leveraging augmented and virtual reality, where we will use more mic- micro learning bite size approaches, where we're delivering small, impactful content and an immersive experience where you can't just click through the PowerPoint slides, you're actually in an environment and your focus, which actually I think there's some some stats out there, like 16 times um, higher retention rates by being in that kind of an environment to learn. So I think it's, to answer your question in short there, we're going from more of ad hoc check the box compliance exercises to formalized defined programs that are CISO priority that have more innovative technology to deliver more immersive capabilities. And that's a, that's an interesting concept there, the, the retention. Right, so I, I am one who struggles with, let's say, executive management, being able to direct my focus where I want it to for as long as I need it to be. So when you talk about having new technologies facilitate and enable people who, much like myself, may have difficulty sitting through a PowerPoint presentation and saying, this is a a 16x Mm -hmm. multiplier for your retention rate. Is part of that because there is no alternative. There's no way for you to multitask in the metaverse, right? I mean, for me, like you're wearing goggles, you got things like you can't do anything else unless you're a safety risk. So is part of that retention because you, you have to be focused in that environment or is it because of the shorter format? I think it's a combination. I think the focus, number one, yes, for those like yourself and probably myself that have ADHD, aiming in a very self-contained environment is, of course, you can't be clicking on other things. You're not getting, you're not picking up your phone if you're wearing some goggles in the in actual, you know, VR experience. But I think the other thing is it's the micro content 
It's the focus on content. And usually when you're in more of an interactive environment, you're having to do something with your hands. So it's hands-on learning as well, which I also see as that muscle memory. So I think it's a combination of different things. Now, not everybody is going to be in a VR headset, right? Not, not everyone has them. And so there are different methods like augmented reality, which are usually delivered through an iPad or tablet device. There are some desktop versions as well, but it's while you're not fully contained, we're still able to leverage some of those methodologies and instruments within the actual learning content where we can have that increased retention, maybe not 16x times, but still leveraging a similar approach to increase the retention. And I think the last thing I'll say there is also it's, it's also the amount of nudges and the amount of time that we are relaying and conveying information in different formats. So it's not just like if you picked up your crochet needles, I don't know if that's the right term. <laughs> <laughs> and you're only sure, doing we'll it once once, uh, once every six months, you may get a little rusty and maybe there's a little hole in your blanket, Brad. So it's all about repeating those and having that muscle memory over time where you're really going to be able to change that behavior and have non-holy blankets, so to speak. So if I'm thinking from a board level or an executive level, I can, I can uh, intellectually understand adopting some of these technologies is going to make my training more effective, right? But there's, there's a, a practical cost that comes with that, mm-hmm. right? And if we start looking at the adoption of, of micro trainings or increasing the frequency of trainings, should I be concerned that I'm now asking people to dedicate more time to this education material and not to their primary job function? Yeah, I think it's a balance, right? Um, we don't want everyone to all of a sudden be, you know, not hitting numbers at the end of the day. Yeah, the executives, they care about the bottom line, right? So we have to have that balance. And I think that you take a risk-based approach, right? Where you're looking at, well, what are the personas and the high-risk groups within my environment that, number one, would they benefit from a more immersive technology? Um, We've done studies to see which groups would prefer that as a delivery vehicle for learning, because not everyone is going to benefit from that kind of environment. So I think it's, you know, knowing about your people, how they like to learn, how you can motivate them, what avenues do they like to be communicated with where they're going to really receive and digest information and making sure that your strategy is directed in those ways. So a VR, you know, it's not like you're going to buy 80,000 if you have a large corporation VR headsets and ship them to everybody. I think it's looking at the pockets where what are your highest risk employees and learning about the ways in which that persona group, so a group of like-minded individuals who either have similar roles, responsibilities, access, privileges, things of that nature, what's the best way for us to engage with them And then that's where you can focus and prioritize from a financial standpoint on how much learning do they need? Do they just need foundations? Do they need higher proficiency because they are a larger targeted group? And then what is the best way technology-wise to deploy these learning or communication or awareness avenues to them? I might also raise the point in contradiction to what Brad's saying, which To your point, Bria, around the micro learning. So instead of focusing all of their time and expenses on, say, a very long structured training engagement that, again, you are struggling to remain, say, or have your audience remain attentive throughout, Mm -hmm. that actually that decreases development time. And so I'm curious, you know, with that, as well as we've got I mean, I just saw an ad the other day for AI-based instructors. So no longer having to go to facilities and actually videotape individuals on site. Now I've got an AI bot that otherwise looks pretty human. So have you also seen benefits that way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, the attention span of what like a, a I think the adult is like 10 to 15 minutes. I mean, at most, come on. Really heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a pretty ambitious number to hit. I don't know. <laughs> right. I'm with you guys. Like we didn't, I didn't say we were average. Okay. Um, so yeah, I agree. Right. Like micro 
learning and applying that no matter what the technology vehicle is and hitting them with that throughout is I think super helpful. And I agree with you also on the AI capability. Like I'm seeing that a lot as well, especially with organizations that have like heavy call centers where it's also becomes an accessibility a positive for them, so to speak, where if they're on a call with a customer and something pops up where they may need some security guidance, AI can be used in chatbots even to give them the information that they need at the right time. So that's why I also say, Brad, like we're moving away from training. It's not all a training focus anymore. Mm -hmm. It's even just the, hey, did you see this tip sheet? Here's the five things that you need to know, or this just popped up in your call center conversation. Click this link and like navigate here to find how you can quickly give guidance on XYZ topic. So I 100% agree, Christy. I think it's it's a balance in short. So I I have two questions. They're unrelated, but uh, I'm going to ask them in a primary and follow-up manner. Uh, just to make things more more interesting. So one, a lot of what you just described uh, and the way these programs can be built is predicated on having access to data, right? Consumption channels, preferences of communication, the technologies you have. A lot of that is is data-driven. First Mm -hmm. question, how should organizations think about one, acquiring that data and processing that data without it being a manual Turk activity, right? And the second question is, should we and are we helping executives understand that they need to be modeling the behaviors that they want their people to see or that they want their people to do, right? So if they're going to say our teams need to be active, they need to be in training, they need to be in going through these micro learnings, we as executives need to sit there with the goofy goggles on and model (laughs) behavior that we want our employees to exhibit. Yeah. I'll start with the first question. Um, So I would say, ugh, is my first response to that. If everyone could see me on screen here, there was like a sigh and a slump of the body. Data is the hardest part, right? And that's where a lot of my clients right now are struggling. And there's a, especially if you're a larger organization, you typically have siloed functions, different kind of data sources. If you've acquired other corporations, like it's kind of a hot mess. But I think there's still ways to get there, right? On the data side, I think, you know, what's important is leverage what you currently have, like take a baseline of what's available today. And so a lot of organizations are already collecting data that can help assess, number one, what is the current security culture look like? What are some of the attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that we're seeing? And then there's a lot of ways that you can leverage to collect information. I know everyone hates a good survey, but that is a tool that we will sometimes use to gather preliminary information for targeted groups to get a good understanding of like, what are some of those baseline cultural attributes? Or we can also look at past learning and training metrics to see if there's been feedback, things of that nature. But I think it's number one, start with the data that you have access to today. A lot of it is reported. It's more of just, you know, being able to aggregate it. So I would say start with your groups that have already done some of that work for you, like your third-party risk management team or your internal enterprise cybersecurity risk management teams. Your SOCs are going to have a lot of that information from the incidents any incidents that have had root causes that tied back to human-related behaviors, things of that nature, and then determine where your gaps are and what you're trying to analyze and then use different avenues like starting with a survey or what I, I like to use is what's called a focus group where we'll identify what the data is that we're trying to gather. We'll find individuals that we think would participate and give us that targeted information. And we'll have very general conversations with them about their day, their priorities, what they're seeing, what their perspectives are. So I think it's leverage what you have and then figure out what the Delta is and leverage different capabilities to try to gather that to create a holistic picture, establish your baseline, and then figure out what are you trying to change? What are the behaviors we want to see and establish your metrics off of that so you can measure then progress in the future. So that was so the first question. You, I'll pause there. 
can you can you give some examples of what might be some cursory behaviors or data points that might be initially collectible? Sure. And then yeah. how those transform into what you want to collect? What, what, what should I be? Like, I I don't know much about this space, right? That's okay. Yeah. What, yeah, what would sure. I want to collect? So I'll give you an easy one to start with, like phishing campaigns and simulations. Those are usually the easy ones. Even if a company is like very um, immature, just starting out, let's say they don't even do phishing simulations. Mm. We could still go to the security operations team and ask, hey, do you have any data around um, employees that reported suspicious emails? or that actually clicked on links or opened attachments that led to a security event or incident. So starting there, right? If they're doing campaigns where they're running those simulations where, whoops, you clicked on a fish, here you get some training, you can pull some data points from that as well. And so the behavior we wanna see here is number one, employees report suspicious emails to the identified appropriate channels so they can be investigated. And then number two, that they're not actually clicking on or opening um, anything malicious. And so we start by looking at that data first of what are they doing today? And then after you've gone through like a campaign where maybe you've done a training or a simulation, you'll then measure again to see, did we see an increase or decrease of click rates or open rates um, from the employees? So you want to establish the behavior and then tie the data points to that. So that's an easier one. A harder one would be something more like um, vulnerability management. Usually, uh, you know, programs are already reporting on how many vulnerabilities have been identified, how many have been patched. So if we did um, a targeted training for software developers on secure coding in applications, and then we measured the amount of vulnerabilities that we're seeing in a particular application or environment over time, we want to see did the vulnerability scans show a decrease in vulnerabilities over time after that SDLC secure coding uh, program was launched. Right. I like that one. Now, I, I want to go back to the phishing example you used. Thank, and it was super simple for me. Thank you. It helped me process. Uh-huh. Now, are, is there data out there that we can, we can look at and say, here's the average relapse period? Right? So I, I think of this in the terms of like a sales convention or a sales meeting. Right? People come out of a training. They've got fresh knowledge. They're going to they're gonna perform better. Right? Unless they're actively trying to avoid using the knowledge they just got or the training they just got. They're going to... They're, going to be a little more suspicious of emails. But at some point, without the repetition, without the micro touches, there's going to be a relapse period. Right? So we may see an initial fall off in the number of successful phishing attacks or simulated attacks, mm-hmm. but then uh, a relative spike again once that, that period. Is there data out there that's being measured to know how frequently certain things need to be re, retaught or reinforced? There is, and actually one of my colleagues recently sent me an article on it, and I'm totally blanking on the guy's name who did this study, which shows like the curve, right? Of, I don't think he used the word relapse, so to speak, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, but it's like the forgetfulness or yeah, forgetfulness mm. of learning curve. So there are studies out there. I'll have to look and see what kind of some of those specifics were, but it's relatively quickly. I would say, if I recall correctly, like within 30 days, you can slowly start to see that decline. And it's like a bit of a peak right here up front and then drastically drops down. So that's where I would say, you know, you want to make sure that anything that you're doing, not just a phishing campaign, is done throughout the year. What I've seen in the past is, you know, October's coming up. If you guys didn't know, October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Um, it's a lot of com- season. It's what, and it's spooky season. Yes, so we got to talk about Halloween costumes after this. Um, but 
focused on October. Well, guess what, guys? That's one month out of the 12. We sell, we sell 12, right? And organizations need to focus on a year-long campaign. So every month, have a theme and have some sort of awareness message. Doesn't have to be a training, but something that's going out where you're, you're absolutely right, Brad, on that forgetfulness curve, where you're const, being constant communication with your population so it, it doesn't just erase from their memory. So how might something, and I, I want to say I, I may have seen something on Instagram and called it the trough of, of forgetfulness, yep. right? That, that dip. Now, as technologies advance, and not just the technologies we use to deliver trainings or to, to reinforce behaviors, but the actual technologies that we use to protect things. So mm-hmm. phishing being the example. So as our defensive technologies improve and we get to states where we have better visibility and better execution of our cyber functions, let's say phishing, and we're able to prevent phishing attempts from entering the environment, how much impact does that have on our training culture and how closely tied do the two groups need to be? Got it. Okay. So yes, (laughs) very closely tied. And I'll give you a recent example. One of my clients is going through a process right now where they're launching MFA everywhere. And our cybersecurity culture change program that we've been building and, and delivering for them, one of the behaviors, priority behaviors that we've been focused on is trying to get employees to use multi-factor authentication throughout their day-to-day. So what I foreseen shifting is right now, our priority behavior may be changing how people interact with MFA. But once that technology is rolled out and they're enforcing it, you're enabling people and to, to and enforcing, so to speak, them to mm-hmm. use that. So it's like, yes, do we need to educate them maybe on the importance of it, but maybe we're not really focusing our campaign on that as much once it's become a cultural norm. So I think that those two words right there, cultural norm, is really important. So being able to, you know, be in alignment with the roadmap of the technology side is really important because we want to focus efforts on the risks. And if that particular area is not a risk, then we need to reprioritize what the behaviors are. So I usually recommend every three to six months looking at what the priority behaviors are that an organization defines and will shape their campaign for training and awareness around. And if we find that, nope, this, this is a cultural norm, this is, a, this is improving, then we need to refocus our efforts. So to answer your question in short, yes, they need to be both very closely aligned. Because if we're training on something that has absolutely nothing to do or is not an issue, it's a waste of everybody's time and money. So you talk about a cultural norm. And if we were to try and quantify that, how do you know when you've achieved a cultural norm? What does the persistence of that behavior look like over time? You know, it's funny you ask that. I one of my one of my clients asked their CISO that, and they're like, "It's a feeling." And I said, "Yes, it is. Tell me about your feelings." That's a great question. Everyone wants to know that. Like, how do you measure that? Right. And I think that there's some quantifiable as well as qualifiable metrics that you can look at. Right. You know, do we see people who are constantly circumventing the vendor procurement life, you know, management cycle or they're bringing new tools in and they're connecting them to the environment? Or do we have people that are out there like, hold on, we got to run this through. We got to get the, you know, a risk assessment done before we bring this in. So I think like you can look at how people are following the process. You can also, you know, assess awareness of certain established procedures or controls and assess, are they following them? So I think it's a kind of combination of those different things. And then also, you know, the messaging, right? Is it a business first priority versus a business, but let's make sure by design we have security baked into it. 
I think the one thing that you're hitting on that I find really interesting is as somebody that read Atomic Habits, and I feel like a, a lot of people end up reading that book to change behaviors in themselves. I was thinking about how this like four laws of behavior change that they tend to outline talks about like behavior in a way that maybe we don't use the same wording in a cyber context that often, but basically that you need a cue to initiate a behavior. So understanding, you know, what's visible for me to go, if that's a phishing email that I've begun to recognize through awareness campaigns or trainings, and then there's a craving. So the motivational force to change your behavior that, that you're saying that's a feeling. I think a lot of times when we're talking about shifting into the, I want to be the hero in this story when I'm reporting, that's a huge part. But then the like getting to the response and reward pieces really come down to the enterprise. So the behavior that you're going to perform uh, like the response piece, that has to be something that the organization has informed you so that you have the right actions towards. And the reward, mm-hmm. that's something where I know you mentioned a little bit about gamification. I also, you know, understand that you relate it back to employees progress, but all of those together, it's just so interesting to hear you talk because I'm thinking about any one of us that has ever tried to change a, a bad behavior in ourselves or a behavior that, you know, we know could be improved probably didn't realize like the relation exactly to, to what we deal with in a cyber lens every day. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's like, Oh, if I go to the gym five times this week, I'm definitely buying those Lululemon pants. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that, yeah. it's that reward, right? It's the what Pavlo's dog carrot dangling over you kind of thing. And that's what I think is like also where programs are shifting is like, it's not just training and awareness. It's, we have to motivate our people. So a lot of this ties into like HR, L and D type processes where we got to figure out what are the motivators and incentives and, and tying it into performance management in a positive way. And Brad, I don't want to forget the second question you had, which is around executive and leadership support. That's essential. And what I've seen in the past is, you know, everyone's just like, nope, that's the CISO. That's their responsibility to be that visible vocal support. In my opinion, no, it's got to be everybody. You got to have your big heavy hitters in business operations, in HR and legal, partnering with privacy all across the kind of key pillars of the organization have visible, vocal, consistent support of cybersecurity, because that goes back to what Chrissy was just hitting on that hero mentality. Like people naturally want to emulate the behaviors of their heroes. And in a corporate environment, that's their leadership. So if they see they're wearing those goofy goggles or they see they're doing coffee chats or promoting, you know, an awareness newsletter or whatever that may be, we find that also helps employees want to emulate those behaviors as well. I like that. I, I never thought of my leaders in the, the context of a hero, right? But having been a, a born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, right? Heroes has a very different, brings up a very different mental image for me, right? I don't, I don't know that I would wait, look wait. at- Superman, Spider-Man, what are we going here, Brad? I mean, Do it's got to be, <laughs> my favorite is Spider-Man, right? Always Spider-Man. I had uh, a throw pillow on my college bed of Spider-Man. Uh, but you, you got to be impressed with Superman, right? Oh, look at that. For those who can't see, Christy has a Spider-Man pencil. Um, Now I'm jealous. I don't have one to pull up. I know. I just was looking around. I was like, wait, do I have anything cool? No. I'm all like (laughs) Um, wizards and Harry Potter over here. Yes. You just got excited. We'll do do another episode on that. Cannot wait. The question to myself is, do I even know my leaders well enough to consider them as heroes? Right? And I know that's not the topic of the day, but having that mental shift and mindset of these are the people who are leading the company. They do have hero status to a degree because mm-hmm. I'm trusting them to take us into prosperity. Right. So I have, to, I have a certain amount of faith in my leaders. Yes. And, and leaders can be at different levels too, right? It doesn't have to be just your, your top of the top that you may not know very well, or have never had a conversation of, but it has to start with them. And I'm going to use the, the term top-down approach, right? It has to start with them. So it trickles down to their le- their next level and their, their management level. So by the time it gets down to the employees, that it's 
you have that relationship with your direct manager who you do know or communicate with or your supervisor, and they have been passed on that same attributes, uh, cultural norms and beliefs because their leaders believe it. So you're, it's kind of, um, you know, the, the trickle down effect, as I'll call it. So we, we talked about the trickle down effect of support and advocacy for new new training and, and education pathways. Now, in some of the organizations I've worked with, uh, both present and in the past, the executives are sometimes the worst offenders. Yeah. Right. And not because they are negligent, but because they are about efficiency. They need things to happen fast. They need to th- things to happen at a velocity with a quality level that the average employee may not need. Right. Yep. An, an employee may t- be able to take an hour to do something, whereas an executive has 30 seconds in the day. Yep. Right. So things like poor password hygiene, poor IT configuration, the I, it's got to work now because I have a meeting in two minutes or I have a, mm-hmm. a thing in two minutes where I need to be able to use X, Y, and Z. Is there uh, some role-specific messaging that goes into the preparation of these programs to get the executives to understand like, yes, your life is going to be a little bit harder at first because mm-hmm. not only are we going to try, try and change your habits, but we're also going to introduce you to a new set of technologies that you're going to have to learn how to use or uh, that may make things easier for you. How does that conversation typically go? Well, first I start off with orange is not the new black, mm. a little scared straight program. No, I'm kidding. I'm really excited about this area because I'm actually, one of my teams is in the process right now of creating a custom executive tailored learning strategy where we um, 100% executives are special. And so in that we have to, just like any other, what I was calling earlier, a persona group, we consider them to be a persona group of them, of them, their own. And so in that we talk, take those attributes that we know of that you just mentioned about speed, time, convenience, all of those things. And we craft our approach to fit that them and their needs, because that's what we find is going to be most effective is it's unique to them because we can't just give them the off the shelf 101 baseline foundations that everybody else gives. So I think in that it's very important to hit on the risk factors because they care about the bottom line. So a lot of the content that we're creating for this executive course right now is focused on telling stories about organizations that are very similar to theirs that have gone through breaches. I'm going to use the B word, not Bria, and making it real for them on what some of the impacts could be, the risks and ramifications, and teaching them very specifically what they can do. Now, what I'll say is a key success factor in this is having a persona group that's focused on executive admins. Mm. It's it couples this very well because they are the the right hands of these executives' lives, not only in a professional sense, but also in some personal capabilities as well or capacities. So we also in tandem talk to their executive admins and create a persona around that and help enable them to support their executives to have secure behaviors. And that's where I think it goes back to what you were hitting on around the ease is making it easy for them and enabling them to live day-to-day security values and, and implement that within their, their, their functions. Yeah. Um, there was a, a project that Matt Miller did an insider threat related project where they looked at yes, the executives, but the bigger attack factor was the executive admins right? Because they have access to so much information. They've got access to all of the executives calendars, all of the executives emails, all of their credit cards, all of their personal information. And like you said, they also perform in some aspects, personal functions, Yeah. right? Because they have to balance the professional scheduling against the personal needs of of the executives they support. So there's a lot of consolidated um, authority in those executive admins. And they are typically the most overlooked group because they're considered a a back office function and it's not recognized that they have, they're so central to the effective running of the organization at the top. So I I like that. I like that lens. I like that tech. Yeah. And I'll give you a, I think it was a question we're putting in one of the trainings, which is 
Like, what do you think is the most valuable to a cyber attacker? And we're, this is for the executive training we're doing. And one of them is like your social security number, your credit card number, or your corporate credentials. And if you look at some of the, the numbers out there, I think corporate credentials are about where, you know, social security number you can buy for like five bucks on the internet's dark right. web. Nobody goes do anywhere. that. <laughs> uh, anyway, they're already all out there. And then, um, you know, credit card, that's a different thing. You can go change and get a credit card so easily. Like it's, it's like, whatever. At this point, everyone's credit card's been stolen. But then if you look at corporate credentials of an executive, they are like, compound exponentially more expensive oh, and valuable for an attacker to purchase because of the access where you're looking at from a hundred to a couple thousand dollars, depending on the executive, their corporation, et cetera. You know, Bria, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. I do have one final question and it's a doozy. So prepare yourself for this. Ooh, all right, hold on. Right, we started the conversation out with you taking us through your most recent skill acquisition. I want to know what's the next one you're going to tackle. Ooh, man. Well, Christy's trying to peer pressure me into some golf here. So I think positive, golf- positive pressure, positive, yeah, pressure. Po- po- um, positive pressure. Um. Thank you. <laughs> so golf, like full golf and Christy, you can chime in here too. Cause I, I don't know the context of what you're trying to positive pressure her into. Uh, is it like driving <laughs> range golf or like 18 holes of golf? I think it's the 18 holes. That's right. That's how many there are Christy. Yeah. I mean, my whole intention is let's not just ride around in the golf cart all day, but if we end up there, will we be sad? No. <laughs> She's trying to get me so from stop drinking beers and then trying to drive all of the golf carts to actually playing the game. So, you know, behavioral change. I need some motivators. Yeah, that, that's a tough proposition. Golf is is a long game. It requires a lot of concentration. I, I peter out after about two holes. Okay. And then I'm like, let's go to the driving range and just hit long bombs and see, see, make it Smack fun. Some balls. Get the yeah. aggression out. All right. So maybe you need to come with us on this journey is what I'm hearing. I accept the invitation. Yes. The red pill or the blue pill. Will you take, will you ride the golf cart or will you play the golf? <laughs> I, I will do both. <laughs> you can only choose one. Time. This is the matrix. Okay. <laughs> Well, Bria, thank you for uh, a scintillating conversation today. It was very educational for myself. Greatly enjoyed um, hearing about what you do, how you do it, how you approach it, and the evolutions that are coming in your space. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for having me. This was great. I'm honored to be here. And obviously, this is an area I'm very passionate about here. And uh, look forward to our uh, Harry Potter superheroes uh, podcast coming soon. Ding, ding, ding. Let's go. 